city of Jerusalem has just been destroyed by Babylon, a great kingdom in the north. And all of these Jewish people, they've been sent away into exile, but a few remained in the city. And they're left wondering, what just happened? Has our God abandoned us? Right, because Jerusalem was supposed to be the city where God would reign over the world to bring peace and blessing to everyone. Now Isaiah had been saying that Jerusalem's destruction was a mess of Israel's own making. They had turned away from their God, become corrupt, and so their city and their temple were destroyed. Yeah, everything seems lost. But the poem goes on. There's a watchman on the city walls. And far out on the hills, we see a messenger. And he's running towards the city. He's running and he's shouting, good news. And Isaiah says, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. Beautiful feet? Yes. The feet are beautiful because they're carrying a beautiful message. What's the message? That despite Jerusalem's destruction, Israel's God still reigns as king, and that God himself is going to one day return to this city, take up his throne, and bring peace. And the watchmen sing for joy because of the good news that their God still reigns. Now in the New Testament, we find this same phrase, the good news. It's the Greek word euangelion, and it's also sometimes translated with the word gospel. Yeah, so when Christians say, do you believe the gospel, they mean, do you believe the news? But not just any news. In the Bible, this phrase is always about the announcement of the reign of a new king. And in the New Testament, the Gospels use this phrase to summarize all of Jesus' teachings. They say that he went about proclaiming the good news of God's kingdom. So Jesus saw himself as the messenger, bringing the news that God reigns. Yes, but the way that he described God's reign, it surprised everybody. I mean, think, a powerful, successful kingdom. It needs to be strong, able to impose its will, able to defeat its enemies. But Jesus said the greatest person in God's kingdom was the weakest, the one who loves and who serves the poor. And he said that you live under God's reign when you respond to evil by loving your enemies and forgiving them and seeking peace. This is an upside down kingdom. Now Jesus also said that this kingdom was arriving with him. Yeah, so for example, there's this really interesting story where there's a high ranking Roman officer and he comes to Jesus begging him to heal his servant. And he even calls Jesus his Lord, acknowledging that Jesus is his authority. Jesus praises this man for recognizing what no one else yet had, that not only was Jesus announcing God's kingdom, he was the king. And so the word gets out that this Jewish man from Galilee is talking and acting like he's the king of Israel. He's appointing 12 disciples, which are an image of Israel's 12 tribes. He's healing people forgiving people their sins. And all of this so threatened Israel's leaders that they finally decide to have him killed. And Jesus let them. Yeah, which is a weird thing to do if you're trying to become king. That's right, but for Jesus, this is what had to happen. Jesus saw the sin and the devastation of his people Israel as just one small part of the entire human condition. How all humanity has rebelled against God, resulting in the tragedy and devastation of our whole world. So how is God going to bring his reign over such a world? Jesus believed it would be through an act of sacrificial love for his enemies. This is why in the Gospels, Jesus' crucifixion is depicted as his enthronement as the king of the Jews. Yeah, he receives a crown, 
he also receives a robe. He's exalted up, not onto a throne, but onto the cross. How beautiful are the feet that bring good news. And the good news now is that Jesus has defeated death and that he reigns as king, that he's dealt with our sin and corruption himself and that he's conquered it with his life and with his love. And then Jesus sends his followers to go out and keep announcing this good news of the upside down kingdom. And to invite everyone to give their allegiance to him, the king who defeated death with his love. Last week, our deacon Evan delivered the word out of 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, and he talked about this good news that we have and that we have a ministry. He talked about how this ministry comes directly from God, that this ministry would be opposed because the enemy doesn't want this message of the good news to go out to all humanity. So he is going to come directly against it all the time. But the reality is that this ministry of the gospel is powerful. It is absolutely powerful. And this is the ministry that we get to represent. Now today we're going to take it even further because Paul is not done with this topic of the gospel and this good news that we get to deliver. But the little twist that we get today is that we are going to realize that there is a cost to you and I being the instruments of delivery. In other words, there is a cost, a risk, so to speak, for every individual that calls themselves a, a Christ follower, and we will see that in our past today, passage today. Now, the title of our message is A Work of Death. Now, I know that sounds a little morbid. Now, please understand that the work of death here is just the foundational. It's going to model what Jesus did. He had to die before he rose again and before the world made uh, the glory of God was known amongst the world. And so this is exactly our ministry. We, like Jesus, have to die to ourselves. And there's a ministry of death that we're going to look at, which is the only thing that can lead to a ministry of life and thus God's name being known and glorified amongst the world. And so that's our outline. It's death, it's life, it's glory. Let's pray that God would use our time together for his, for his honor. Lord, thank you so much for the privilege that we have to look at your word. We do not take it for granted that you are a holy God that we get to come before your presence. And we don't want to come with many words. We don't want to come uh, in a haphazard way. Lord, we want to come as humble individuals wanting to learn what you have to tell us, what you need to instruct us. And we pray, Father, that your spirit would help us to understand what our part in this ministry is all about. Help us to understand what it means to die to ourselves. Help us to understand what it means to have a ministry of life Help us to understand what it means to see your glory be known in our life. And so, Lord, I pray, Father, that you would use our time together in a way that would honor you. We love you, Father. This is about you. It's not about the man standing here. It's not about any individual here. It's about you, and we focus on you, and we focus on your word in which we need your instruction. And we pray that in Christ's name. 
Amen. Let's talk about a ministry of death. He starts off in chapter 4, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Take a look at verses 7 through 12. What I'll do is I'll read the passage to set the context and then we'll kind of tear it apart. It says this, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the all-surpassing power is from God and it's not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side but not crushed, perplexed but not in despair, persecuted but not abandoned, struck down but not destroyed. We always carry about in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life may also be revealed in our mortal bodies. So then, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. Now, as Paul starts out writing these words in verse 7, he does a curious thing by making a contrast between humble, broken pottery to this all-surpassing power of God. So we'll get to that in a minute. But the first thing he talks about is a treasure. He talks about a treasure. Now this links us back to the previous six verses because he talked about the gospel and the good news and the ministry that we have that's been given to us by God. I want you to know that this gospel is that treasure. That gospel is the treasure. Now you say, what is the gospel? It's the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's our need as an individual to come to a place of surrendering ourselves completely to him, repenting of our sin, and turning to him as our Lord, and trusting our life with him. That is the beautiful gospel message that is so powerful. Now the reason that this is a treasure is because it has power. It has power to transform. It has the ability to take an individual that's a sinner and turn them into a saint. I want you to know that the words of the gospel are more powerful than anything this world has ever experienced. Think about it. There have been many words that have been given throughout hu human history that have influenced many people. Paul Revere, when he rode through town saying, the British are coming, the British are coming, it was a warning to, the, to those around him, to, to John Hancock and Samuel Adams and to the, the patriots at that time. That was a powerful, uh, powerful words at that time. Then we think of people like Martin Luther King who used words to bring about a peaceful revolution of equal rights when he gave a I have a dream speech on the Lincoln Memorial. They were powerful. It influenced history. Think of JFK and, and how he united a nation when the nation needed to be united. And on his inauguration, he said, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, but what can you do for your country? Little different than the political rhetoric that we're hearing today, right? I think we are all tired of the rhetoric. But I want you to know these were powerful words. But they were words that didn't do anything for the soul of man. Not one of these individuals or many other people that, that spoke things that transformed society really changed the heart of the individual. And see, this is the power of the gospel. 
See, the gospel is a treasure because it brings inward transformation. It's the only thing that can take a person that's walking in darkness and all the things that are associated with it and turn that person around where they are now walking in light and they are a different individual. It's the difference between the apostle Paul or Saul when he was a murderer to now he's an apostle writing three-fourths of the New Testament. Amazing. And God has given us that powerful gospel. And believe me, it is used, has been used to transform societies. Think about what happened it, when, when all of, after the resurrection, God gave that commission to the disciples, the apostles, and they went out to the four corners of the world and they shared and proclaimed the gospel to, to those that were far and near. And it made an impact. It was handed off to other church fathers and men and women that were faithful to the call. We think of people like Martin Luther and John Wesley, William Carey, Lottie Moon, Amy Carmichael, Billy Graham, and countless other men and women throughout our human history that have had a profound impact in seeing Indians, in seeing Africans, in seeing all these nations come to faith in Christ. And what made the difference? What was the revolution? It was the gospel message. It is a treasure. It is the only thing that we have been given that can transform hearts. And my friends, it's not something of the past. Oh, dare we not think that or make that mistake that this is just a past thing. It is the message that he has instilled with each of you as a Christ follower. If you are a Christ follower, that treasure is within you. It is a part of you. The question is, what are we doing with that treasure? Are we just keeping it locked up tight within us? Or are we allowing it to radiate in our life? See, the next thing that he says is he says, we got this treasure. But notice what he says, in jars of clay. Now, here's the contrast. Jars of clay in the all-surpassing power of God. Now, let me talk about jars of clay. The jars of clay was a specific imagery that the Apostle Paul was trying to create in that day. Because it was used to collect trash. Even used for a bathroom, for human waste. And so what you think, man, why did Paul must have made a mistake in making that kind of analogy? No. What Paul wanted us to understand is that we are like this jars of clay. We are broken down pottery. We are lowly. We are common. We are expendable. We are human pots. That's, that's how he is characterizing us. Now, please understand there's a motive for Paul. Remember, there were those that Evan pointed out last week and Adam the week before that were calling themselves super apostles. These people that were going around acting arrogant. Paul is giving him his own life in contrast. This is what it's all about. We are humble individuals. And here's what Paul was trying to help us understand. When we understand who we are, then the power of God is amazing. See, he wants us to understand that he is not the power, uh, Paul is not the powerhouse. We as fellow workers for God are not the powerhouse. God is the powerhouse. We are simply the vehicle by which God has chosen to work through us. Broken pots, an amazing God. 
Now think about what happens. When God chooses to work through the likes of us, ordinary individuals, and he does extraordinary things, all we can do is give glory to God because it's like, man, that didn't come from me. That didn't come from me because I know who I am. So don't think it a light thing if you are a Sunday school teacher. Oh, you are a broken pot. Yes, you are. Look at your neighbor and tell them they are a broken pot. Go ahead, do it. Yeah, tell, tell them they're a broken pot. You can tell them they're a beautiful broken pot, but they're a broken pot. Now, when, if you are a Sunday school teacher, let me use that as an example. I want you to know that you have an incredible outreach. Do you realize that we have nearly 50 children that come through our ministry each and every week? And do we want as parents for every one of those children to come to a saving faith and knowledge of Jesus Christ? Well, I want you to know we have a little baby Faye that's going to be in the nursery soon. And we, some of you guys have a new baby. And as you watch them grow up, you are going to pray as a parent. You're going to pray your heart out that they would come to know Jesus. And you're going to do that. You're going to represent that yourself. But you're also going to be thrilled when you hear that one day your little child went up to a Sunday school worker and tugged on their skirt or tugged on their pant leg and said, I'd like to ask Jesus into my heart. Now, when that happens, uh, a Sunday school worker, please understand, you have just witnessed the power of God working through a broken pot. And that's a beautiful thing. That is a beautiful thing. And Paul said it best in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. He says that all of this is done so that it's a demonstration of the Spirit's power through us. Did the power come from us? Nope, not at all. But God has chosen to work through jars of clay. Now notice the progression here. We have this treasure. We are broken pots. God wants his all-surpassing power to work right through us. But then he gives us the reality of how difficult this life is going to be. And so what Paul does is he gives a whole list of the difficulties that we're going to face. At least it's out and open. It's not in small print. By the way, there's going to be difficulties in life. No, no, God puts it right there, bold in our face. This is what you are going to experience. Now, Paul has lists like this throughout 2 Corinthians. This is the first of them. But this is what he does. Is he starts on the bottom level, and then he keeps working up, and they increase in severity. I put it in a chart for you so that you can see. Hard-pressed, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecution, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. Now let's take a look at that first column there. Hard-pressed, per, uh, perplexed, persecuted, struck down. What we are seeing is the bad news on this, uh, on this side. So he starts off with a low bar of hard-pressed, which means to be squeezed by life issues. Anybody here feel squeezed by life issues? Okay, I think that there's a few of us. And if it's not today, it will be tomorrow. You feel squeezed by life issues. But then he goes on and says perplexed. It takes it up a little bit, which is the, it gives the idea that Christians are taken advantage of, that there's some privilege that you lose in this life because you are a Christian. And then he goes on and he says abandoned. I'm sorry, persecuted, which means to be assaulted for the faith. And then finally struck down, which means to be laid low with a weapon. 
This is actually given the idea that your life could possibly be at risk or it could be taken from you. That's a pretty bad list. It increases pretty drastically. But then look at the other corresponding list. He says, we are not crushed, which shows that our life, our joy, our happiness cannot be squeezed out. Then he says, not in despair, showing that our freedom in Christ can never be taken away from us. Not abandoned, showing that God will never leave us or forsake us. And not destroyed shows that though someone may take my life, they cannot touch my soul because I am eternally secure with God. And my friends, when I look at a list like this, I ask myself, Steve, is this what you're experiencing in this life? Are we as believers in this part of the world experiencing this? And I look at sometimes, sometimes my mind runs, rushes to the Middle East and so, so many Syrians that are believers and so many Iraqis that are believers and Egyptians and people in the Middle East that have lost their life and they've seen their children crucified and, uh, for their faith in Christ. And I look at that and I think, I haven't experienced anything like that. And yet, and to be fair, I realize that there's degrees of severity to all of this. And I think that every believer, no matter what part of the world you're in, you will experience some of these hardships. There are faithful believers that simply lose their job because the company is merging or restructuring. There are Christ follow, there's a Christ-following spouse who is going to lose her husband or their wife because of unfaithfulness. There's an innocent child that is going to have to deal with the friction between mom and dad. There's a single individual that so desperately wants to be married but feels unloved. Do these things squeeze us? Do they perplex us? Do they assault us? Do they lay us low? I believe absolutely. But here's the promise of God. The promise of God, dear believer, is that these things cannot change the fact that you are a child of the King, that you are God's, and you are His all the way, and you, He holds you secure in His hands. It matters not the things that are said about you because you are a child of God. It matters not the lies that are spread about you because God is the God who vindicates you. It matters not that you feel abandoned by an individual because God will never, never, never leave you nor forsake you. That's our God. And so this is what he wants us to understand. Here's the progression. We have this treasure. It's working through these jars of clay. It's the all-surpassing power of God. Life is going to be hard, but here's the key to it all. You must die to yourself. You must die to yourself, because this is what the Apostle Paul says here in verse 10. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be revealed. What's he doing? He's relating us to the death, resurrection, and glory of Christ. And here's the death. We must be likened to the death of Christ. My friends, it is a great day to die to yourself. You want to be an influence in your workplace? Die to yourself. You want to be an awesome husband or an awesome wife? Die to yourself. 
You want to have meaningful relationships, one where they're going to last, die to yourself. You want to lead your children in a godly example, die to yourself. This is what Paul is saying in verse 11. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may be revealed in our mortal bodies. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. Now, before I move on, I got a vital question that I need us to evaluate. And that is this. Are you dying to yourself? Or do you think this life is about you? Do you think it's all about you? Some people have absolutely no joy because they are not modeling their life after the ministry of death of Jesus. They are still living consumed with themselves and consumed with their agendas, consumed with making a name for themselves, and they don't realize that the secret in life is not about me, it's about my death and that Christ be exalted in me. Did Jesus not say, unless a kernel of wheat fall into a ground and die, it remains only a single seed? But if it dies, it produces many seed. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. You see, the secret to true, true joy is found in death to ourselves. That's what Paul wants us to understand. But then he moves from the ministry of death. Death leads to life. And this is what he says. He, it's, at first it sounds confusing, but it's not confusing at all. Take a look. He says, It is written, I believe, therefore I have spoken. Since we have the same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak. Because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us uh, with Jesus and present uh, us with he, you to himself. All of this was for your benefit, so that the grace that reaches more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Now let's understand this, tear it apart a little bit. First of all, what Paul is doing is he's quoting King David in Psalm 116. He's quoting King David when he says, uh, it is written, I believe, therefore I have spoken. He is quoting from that psalm. Now, if you were to read that psalm, what you would find out is that David is talking about his own death experience, his own hardships. He talks about how he is being persecuted, how he is overwhelmed with sorrow. He felt the anguish of the grave upon him. And he is describing this in that, these kind of terms. And then all of a sudden he says, but God showed up. And God came to the rescue. And God lifted me up and restored me. See, what Paul is doing is he's taking the victory of David and relating it in the New Testament sense. So when he says, I believe, therefore I have spoken, it is a phrase of David showing that he is trusting in a God who intervenes in our life. And the Apostle Paul takes this idea that God loves to intervene and he relates it to the resurrection of Christ, the ultimate rescue story. We were lost, we were hopeless, and what God did is he rescued us through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's why he says in verse 14, 
because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. Do you see what he's saying here? The resurrection is the key to an individual being raised to having a ministry of life. See, this is talking about the benefit to you and I. We are the recipients. If you came to a place of saying, I believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and I have become a Christ follower, you have been get risen to life. That's what the scripture says. What a glorious thing. It's an awesome thing. We are recipients. Awesome. We have that measure, that, that treasure within us. But then Paul takes it a step further and says, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. You have that treasure, but that treasure leads to a responsibility. Notice the next verse. He says, all of this was for your benefit so that the grace that reaches more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. See, just as Paul was transformed from murderer to the person who is now an apostle who wrote three quarters of the New Testament, the one who came alongside of the Corinthians, he was in a sense the father of the Corinthian church, he was raised to life. And as a result of that life, he had his circle of influence. And in that circle of influence, he saw people come to faith in Christ and a church was planted. But let's not think that that's just the job of the Apostle Paul. Any Christ follower who has been redeemed and raised to a newness of life has a responsibility because of the resurrection. You have been raised to life. And so God wants us to live out that life. And he wants the grace to flow through us, reaching more and more people. So how does that happen practically with us? I can think of two ways that we're given as an admonishment in the scriptures. Number one, we show the resurrection power by serving others within the church. Here's number one. Use your gifts within the body of Christ. You want to demonstrate the resurrection power? Use your gifts. This is what 1 Peter 4 says, 4, 4 verse 10. Each one should use whatever gift he has received. He doesn't say sit on it, dwell upon it, think about it, rest on it. No, he says use whatever gift he has received to serve others faithfully, faithfully administrating God's grace in its various forms. Do you realize that a spiritual gift that God has given you is a form of God's grace? It was part of the victory of the resurrection. He gave gifts and we received that gift. And so he says, I want you to use that gift. There are some of you that have the ability to help. Some of you that have the ability to teach, to lead, to encourage, to give, to show mercy, to exercise faith. Whatever that gift is, our responsibility is to use that and to find out how we can use it within the church. Now, I know some of you might be saying, well, Steve, how do I know what some of the needs are within the body of Christ? 
I am so glad you asked that question. It just so happens that within the bulletin, we have a list of some needs within the body of Christ that you can help out. This is not an all-inclusive list. There are lots of ways that you can do even outside of this. Maybe your gift is encouragement and you want to go visit shut-ins. That's not on this list, but we can provide that for you. We'll help you anyway, but my prayer is that these needs would be fulfilled because we got some tired people that have been working three years hard and strong that need some help right now. Would you consider that? Here's the other way that we are to use, uh, distribute this grace, this resurrection responsibility, and that is for us to show love to those outside the body of Christ. You remember what Paul, what Jesus told, uh, told us in Acts 1.8? He said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, other most parts of the world. Well, we start, we start with our Jerusalem. And it's, if you think about Jerusalem, it was a geographic area for the disciples at that time. And they each had to determine, what is my Jerusalem? And I think it is a question that you need to ask, I need to ask myself. What's my Jerusalem? Where is my circle of influence? Where is the, where, where, who are the people that are within my care that I can pray for, that I can show the love of Christ uh, to? And so God wants us to be that kind of witness within our circle of responsibility because he doesn't want the treasure just to be here. He wants it to be demonstrated in our lives. Ministry of death that leads to the ministry of life, but that ultimately leads to the ministry of glory. Take a look at what Paul says in concluding. Verse 16, Therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. These three verses are perspective verses. They give us a perspective in life. Paul says that we are not to lose heart. This is the second time he has said this in the chapter. Why do you think he keeps repeating himself? Just like your mother. When she repeats herself, it's because we're not getting it yet. We need to hear that message more than once. See, God knows that ministry is hard. God knows that life in general is difficult. He knows that you will anguish over your kids that they would have Christ's form in them. He knows that there's going to be times that there's going to be conflicts that you have within the church. He knows that there will be unexpected tidal waves of crisis that come in your life that are way beyond your control, that involve loss of job. It involves loss of relationship, loss of life, loss of friendship. God knows it. He says, do not lose heart. The Apostle Paul wants us to understand that. We're not to lose heart. And then he goes on and he says, our bodies are wasting away. I don't like that. 
If you look at the pills in my cabinet, then you would understand that I, my body is starting to waste away. Some of us more than others. But the aging process is what he's describing. And actually for Paul, there were things that accelerated the aging process. Try being shipwrecked. Try being stoned. Try being flogged. Try to have the concerns of all the churches pile upon you and you would understand Paul's statement, I'm wasting away. So you'd say, how can he maintain this? How can he uh, endure such things? He says, because I'm being renewed in the inner man. He says, I'm being renewed. And see, the wasting away is not the glory that he's going to talk about, but it is the inner man being renewed and thus tapping into the heart of God and having the presence of God in our life. My friends, I don't know if you're tired, but I do know that what God wants to do is he wants to renew you. The fact is we feed our soul when we are within the presence of God. And when we do this, then all of a sudden we get perspective. The the problems that we are facing are truly light and momentary. And that they, we realize that there is something more that is beyond this life. And that is what I'm going to keep my focus on. I am not going to focus on my current circumstances. I'm going to see beyond that and realize that God wants to do something weighty in the future. He wants to receive glory as a result of my life and my faithfulness in this world. Please understand that everything you're going through, whatever it is, it's not for naught. It has purpose. In a moment, we're going to close with a song that we have sung before one other time called Though You Slay Me. And in the middle of it, you're going to hear John Piper share about this passage. But here's what I want us to do. I want us to think about this question. The question is, are you looking beyond the physical to the spiritual? Are you looking beyond the present to the future? Are you looking beyond the visible to the invisible? Or is it only the here and now that you can see? And so our invitation in this song is for us to make it our prayer. And for it to be really internalized, for us to realize, yes, I want to die to myself. I want the gospel message to flow through me. And I want God to be glorified in everything. When it's all said and done, at the very end, I want to be held accountable before God. And what I want to hear is, well done, good and faithful servants. You gave me glory in the way that you lived. But that might be not the case for every one of us. We might be off track. Invitations are for us to come back and for us to say, God, here am I. Use this song as your prayer.